Well, this is week two of our summer series, Genesis 1 through 3. We're taking our time, going real slow, verse by verse, sometimes word by word, uh, looking at Genesis 1 through 3. Today, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. Last week, we looked at verse 1, kind of a big general, big picture thing, uh, and now we're doing verses 1 and 2 together, because they... When you put them together, you start to see really cool things there in the text, which I hope for us to draw out today. We use the metaphor of going on a hike, and this is, if going through Genesis 1 through 3 is our church going on a hike through this little part of the beautiful forest of God's Word, um, we're going on the short trail, but we're going to take all summer to do it because we're going to move slowly and look around and pick things up and see and hear and smell and just try to take it all in because uh, there is so much here and there's something in our there's something in our culture uh, that takes these chapters of the Bible especially uh, Genesis 1 uh, and, and and blows through them or uh, uses them really tries to use this section of scripture less like a trail to wander through uh, and more like a battleground to fight on. Um, and we, re- we want to recognize that, that we have that somewhere. There's something, in fact, there's something maybe uniquely American about going to war uh, over these chapters. Not that us Americans are the only ones who do it, but it's part of our national story. About 100 years ago, uh, former Secretary of State uh, and Presbyterian layperson, lawyer, uh, William Jennings Bryan, who ran for president several times. Uh, he was a, a nationally known and recognized and respected evangelical leader. And he became the lawyer, um, one of the lawyers in a really high-profile trial in Tennessee, prosecuting a teacher who had been teaching evolution in public schools. And William Jennings Jennings Bryan, uh, they made a movie about it where Jimmy Stewart played him. I haven't seen it, but, you know, it's one of those Jimmy Stewart movies. Uh, You can imagine it in your head. Uh, But William Jennings Bryan went to war. He, He led American evangelicals in battle, fighting for, well, fighting Looking back, uh, um, maybe not quite sure exactly what he was fighting for, but we know he was fighting against evolution in schools. And it did something in the culture of American evangelicalism that has stuck. Where these chapters, uh, we, 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 it's, it's, we draw battle lines. I, I know myself growing up in church, I was trained at a very young age to articulate what my view is, what our view is. Uh, When I was in uh, middle school, I was ingrained in me less things about what the text says and more things about what the text doesn't say. And I remember being prepared to go to high school as a middle school youth group kid. You're going to go in there and that biology teacher is going to try to teach you and you need to defend your faith. And then again, before I went to college, here's here's how you fight the battle uh, for God's truth. And, And I don't even remember what they told me the text says. I just remember that they told me that it doesn't teach, you know, fill in the blank. I remember arguing with my high school science teachers. I remember feeling like I was fighting the good fight. And maybe you've had a similar experience. And that's not to say that the fight is not good. It is a good fight. It's always a good fight to fight for God's word. Uh, But looking back on my own life, I, I really wish I would have spent time Learning the text, more time doing that than I did fighting about the text. <laughs> uh, the story that Genesis 1 through 3 tells uh, is foundational to the story of the Bible. You, somebody can't really wrap their head around the biblical narrative. In, in fact, sustainably, uh, we can't really wrap our heads around the, the gospel as it's presented to us contextually by God in his word without understanding these 
chapters. So um, we're going to get into some of that science and faith stuff a little bit, maybe a little bit today. Uh, but I, I want to just on the front end, the, our goal here is not to be not to train for battle. <laughs> uh, our goal here is to what does the Bible say? What does the text say? And, and I'm convinced that if we can uh, expand our understanding of what is right here in black and white in front of us, then all the like battles we think we're supposed to be fighting, a, a lot of it will just be cleared right up. And I, and I think what we'll see is that um, Jesus has uh, fought the battle and won the battle for God already, and we're living in his victory. So maybe I'm telling you too much on the front end. Uh, let's get into it. Uh, before we do, the sermon title in your worship guide is, What Does the Bible Say? And I want to tell you that's a little bit of a tribute to my old seminary professor, Gary Brashears. I may have talked about this here before. Some of you might know Gary. Uh, Gary Brashears, Dr. Brashears. He wants his students to call him Gary, which is always weird for me. I want to call him Dr. Brashears, but in his honor, at his request, Gary. Uh, Gary would do this thing in class. He taught theology at Western Seminary where I went. And he would do this thing where he would he would throw out a discussion question that has to do with a controversial text or doctrine or something like that. Maybe like, you know, predestination, uh, since that's something people like to fight about. He he would throw it out and say, okay, students, what do you think about this? And then he'd get an argument going in the class. And then he'd say, turn your Bibles to this passage. And he'd say, okay, uh, I want somebody tell me, uh, in light of this question, whatever the doctrinal issue was that we were fighting about, he'd say, what does the Bible say? And somebody would raise their hand and go, well, it says that this, 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 and this. And they would just, you know, defend their view. And Gary would, uh, he would stand at the front, put his hands like this, shake his head and go, what does the Bible say? <laughs> and then he'd call on somebody else and they'd say, well, it says this, this, and this. And Gary would go. What does the Bible say? And it was sort of a thing. People are kind of, you know, snickering. Come on, Gary, what is it? And he would, he kept shaking his head at every answer and saying, what does the Bible say? Until the, the discussion ran out of steam. And then he would say, look with me at the text. And he would pull out a verse and go word by word, slowly, phrase by phrase, and show us that the thing that whatever it was we were fighting about along our denominational lines or whatever was actually clearly articulated in the text in a way that just bypassed the whole cultural argument. And then once we saw it, he would say, what does the Bible say? And somebody would give a, and he'd go, good, let's move on. <laughs> so today I want to do that with verses 1 and 2. There's some things here that the Bible says that I, this is my opinion, but maybe part of the cultural fervor around, what's your view on Genesis 1? What's your, are you a day age theory? Are you a literal day? Are you a old earth? Are you a young earth? Are you, what, what, what's your, in the midst of all the arguing, there's something here in these two verses that, uh, what does the Bible say that, that I want to show you? Okay. So, uh, if you would, Let's let's read the text, and then we'll um, go through just word by word. So stand for the reading of God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty, darkness over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, I want to pray for our time here. Thinking about Dr. Gary, I pray that you would help us to see, like the words he used, what does the Bible say? It doesn't answer all of our questions, but it answers the most important ones. So I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, illuminate your word for us. Let it shine so clearly. And then in response, like we read before, may the 
words of my mouth and our mouth after this and the meditations of our hearts, would they be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. You guys can be seated. Okay. We're going to go through just phrase by phrase, word by word. So first, in the beginning. In the beginning. For years of my life, I read this in the beginning as if it said once upon a time. It it sounds like appropriate words to start off a story. In the beginning. Here's the beginning of the story. And uh, what I have learned uh, as I have gotten into this study and over the years and, you know, learning Hebrew and reading people who, who do Hebrew way better than I do, that there's, yeah, it does happen to be at the beginning of the story, but this phrase, in the beginning here, is not a once upon a time. It's not, thus here it is, the beginning of the story. It doesn't mean that. It, it means uh, exactly what it says. In, during, the beginning. So in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, when it talks about the beginning of something, uh, it, it's referring not like we would sort of in our linear Western thinking. The beginning is the starting point on a timeline. It, it's not so much that. It's more like the beginning is a era, a period of time before the story actually begins. So last week we used, for a completely different illustration, uh, I referenced The Silmarillion by J.R.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien's big story, his big epic that we all know is, well, he had The Hobbit, but that was sort of a side thing. The big thing is The Lord of the Rings, right? Three volumes, Middle Earth, there's a whole world there. Um, Well, he wrote The Silmarillion to tell the pre- before the Lord of the Rings, all the background stories, all the information. Uh, that was the beginning. That's If we think about what the Silmarillion is to the Lord of the Rings, the Hebrew idea of in the beginning is that. And we see this when it, throughout the Hebrew Bible, when it talks about the reign uh, of kings. We read about like in uh, various places, in the beginning of the reign of King so-and-so. And what that is, is the Hebrew kings, when they would come into power, there would be a, a period of time. It could be very short or it could be very long when they would take the throne, but their their reign had not officially begun. So here's a good example. When we read the end of Second Samuel and the beginning of First Kings, we see that David is an old man full of years and he's fading away. And then we see Solomon is uh, anointed king of Israel, right? Remember that? A while back we told that story. And then there was a period where Solomon reigned as king, but David had not yet finished with the throne. And then eventually David dies, and then Solomon is officially, his reign officially begins. There was a beginning. Or even David. David was crowned in Hebron in the beginning of his reign, but after a while he was then crowned in Jerusalem. So now here's the thing about this Hebrew idea of the beginning. It's a period of time that happens before something officially starts. But the key is it could be a period of time that's very short or it could be a period of time that's very long. And the Hebrew idea of in the beginning, it doesn't, necessarily contain a preference for one or the other. So here in this text, when it starts off in the beginning, in the period of time that we call the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It should bring some uh, uh, ideas to your mind. And I encourage you to not... Drop anchor in those ideas, but let them sit with you for a while. Um, in the time before, during the pre-era, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, let's keep going. In the beginning, 
God. Uh, the, the word here for God in Hebrew is Elohim. We talked about last week how that particular word, it's a general name for God. Uh, it's strangely plural here, although we know from the rest of Scripture that the Hebrew God is one God. And so the reason for the plurality there is sort of like the monarch in the UK, sort of like the queen refers to herself as we. It's a royal we. It's plural to give the connotation of majesty. In the beginning, God. This is, this is not one of the smaller uh, regional pagan deities. This is, this is the big God. In the beginning, God. But also that plurality there, it reminds us, uh, especially as New Testament people, that throughout the story of the Bible, we begin to learn that the singularity of God is a plurality of three. We, over time, the people of God grew into the knowledge of the Trinity. And we see here a little reminder that God in all of his glory is one, but also three. So in the beginning, God. Uh, in the beginning, uh, that means Father, Son, and Spirit together. In the beginning, in the period that was before God created. Now, this word is really powerful. Um, first of all, it is, uh, well, the Hebrew is bara, and we hit this a little last week. This word for create, bara, in the Hebrew Bible is only used when referring to some, a kind of creation that God does. This is not like the illustration, the silly illustration we used last week. This is not like Charlie goes home and creates a sandwich. <laughs> this is, this is God creating something out of nothing. This is divine creation. In the beginning, in the before period, God, bara, created. And Moses, who wrote this, remember Moses was the human author here, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Remember that he was writing in a time and place. He was writing as he was leading the people of Israel. He had led them out of Egypt, and he is uh, just after he's leading them toward Canaan, where, where they're going to go, and he's, he's going to die first. He's not going to make it in. But between Egypt and Canaan, in the desert, he writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, uh, in, including this. And so, for example, when I'm preaching here now, um, I'm not preaching a sermon for imaginary people out there. I, I'm preaching a sermon for you guys. You are the primary audience. As I've thought about these words, as I've prepared, your faces have been in my mind. And if I was preaching this message somewhere else, I would communicate it a little differently for that context. And in a similar way, Moses is writing for the people of Israel. Now, we podcast our sermons. We put them on the website and uh, by strange chance, say uh, just thousands and thousands and thousands of people across the world were listening to this or would be listening to this later. They could get something from this message. This message is also for them. It's for whoever would hear it. But that wouldn't change the fact that you guys are my primary audience. In the same way, what Moses wrote, it's God's word. It's inspired by the Spirit. It's for everyone. God gave it to us for our life and salvation. Like we read in, in, in Psalm 19, it, 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 uh, it brings knowledge of God. It shows us who he is. It, it opens our minds. It opens our hearts. Uh, but we're not the first audience. Now, I, I say all that to say that uh, this idea that God, Elohim, uh, created uh, in, in this special way, this would have been, especially in reference to the heavens and the earth, to, to creation. When Moses wrote this, he was taking a jab at the pagan gods of the nations around them. He was taking a jab at the, the Egyptian gods. In the Egyptian theology, there's all kinds of gods, the sun god, the moon god, and the alligator god. And creation came about as a result, as a byproduct of their uh, interrelating with each other. So this God has a love affair with this God, and as a result, this thing happened. Uh, 
that's how we got creation. But Moses writes, no, no, no. In the beginning, in the time before, uh, God, Elohim, the God, created out of nothing. Only how he creates. That would have perked up the ears of his listeners. Oh, this is a different kind of God. This is, this is not the, the, the pagan gods that we are used to. Okay? In the beginning, in the time before, we don't know how long it was, don't know how short it was, um, God, the great Elohim God, he created the thing that only he does. And he did it out of nothing. He didn't start with something and then shape it to be. He created the heavens and the earth from nothing. That's contained here in this language. But the thing about this first sentence is in Hebrew, it can also, technically, grammatically, it can also be translated, and maybe you've heard this before, like this. Uh, In the beginning, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void. Have you heard that before? Or maybe just like um, some translations say, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void and the spirit of the wind was... Technically in Hebrew, it can be translated like that. Uh, But it's really not a good translation, which is why what I'm using here, the NIV or the ESV or... Uh, the King James or the New King James or the New American Standard or uh, lots of trans- the, the the history of English translation says in the beginning God created. Now, here's the reason for that. It's one of those other pagan deity things. In the Greek system of thought and Greco-Roman uh, theology, which is a great influence on Western thinking, uh, the creation story, the history of the universe started with kind of a uh, prehistoric, uh, primordial, chaotic mess. The universe was like a, like a, like a soup of chaos. And the gods came along and they brought order out of chaos and like a conductor conducts an orchestra and all the notes find their place to make this beautiful, experiential music. The gods early on came into the chaos that was the world before and they arranged existence into what we have now that idea was uh, that was prevalent in greek influenced paganism but moses writes no 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 in the time before god elohim uh, created like only he does out of nothing the heavens and the earth you see where what moses is writing it's confrontational as we think about these verses as ammunition or a battlefield for a culture war. Uh, they have been really since the beginning. When Moses wrote these words for the people of Israel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he was, uh, they were confrontational. Uh, they would not have been popular. Also, this idea that God created out of nothing is testified to in other places in Scripture. It says in Hebrews 11, By faith we understand the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. It says in John chapter 1, verse 3, Through him, that is the, the Word, the, the Son, uh, the Son of God that was in the beginning, uh, part of the Trinity, through him... All things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. (laughs) That's a great verse. So the testimony of Scripture, even though the translation might be tricky here, is testifying to a divine, miraculous act of creation from nothing in the time and during the time before. Tracking with me so far? Here's another thing. That word created, bara. Here in this verse, verse 1, it appears in um, the what's called the perfect verb form. It's a grammatical structure. And that signals that the action of creating is background information. If, if we were to get real literal, like in a Hebrew grammar class, we would say, in the beginning, God had created. He, he did it before, and the effects of what 
he did, uh, are continuing. That's the perfect form. Something that happened already, that's effects are still going. So perfect. Now, that's kind of pointing back to this beginning, time before peace. Are you tracking with me? In the time before, God, Elohim, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, created out of nothing, not like the pagan gods, uh, out of nothing, but by the, by the word of his power, as it says uh, elsewhere, the, the heavens and the earth. Now, the heavens and the earth, we hit this last week again. I, I, you know, I, in my brain, at least growing up with this, I hear the heavens, that's that's the spiritual you know, that's where God is, and the angels, and the earth. That's our planet. Uh, the heavens and the earth, right? Heaven and earth. Well, no. Uh, in Hebrew, the heavens and the earth is what's called a merism. M-E-R-I-S-M. It's an idiom. It's like what we would say when we say from top to bottom. It's where you take two opposites and you put them together in order to give the picture of comprehensiveness. So the heavens and the earth. In, uh, and in fact, it's not the heavens like where the angels are or the earth, the planet. Uh, in fact, in Hebrew, there is no word for planet earth, not in biblical Hebrew. This is the heavens, the sky, the up there, and the earth, the ground, the, the, uh, uh, the, like the dirt and the mud, and the grass, and even better, the land. In the beginning, God created the up there, the top, from top to bottom, the heavens and the earth. Now, let's stop here. Thus far, what kind of, what story is this passage telling us? Just in verse 1. This first sentence in the Bible is not a... Intro note to a longer phrase. It's a whole song in and of itself. This first verse here, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, is a complete story. In fact, it tells the story of creation. In the time before, God created, like only he does, everything. The end. (laughs) You could put the now. I didn't grow up with hearing it that way, but it, if we stop and you know hang out with Gary Brashears and what does the Bible say? You know, that's what it says. In the time before, God, like only He does, created everything. Uh, does that resonate with you? It, it should. Okay, let's keep going, and then we'll we'll kind of hit why this is just so magical. Um, now the next verse, verse 2, it starts off with now the earth. Now the word now, it, it's not a separate word in the Hebrew text. It sort of gets lumped in with uh, the beginning of the word earth. It's, so we, we read it in English. It's there in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that came out in A.D. 70. It would have been what Jesus and his disciples used. It, it's It's there. It's uh, that that word is there, but in Hebrew, it's not quite there like we see it here. The next word in verse 2 is earth in Hebrew. Now, we just talked about the heavens and the earth. Now we have now the earth. And here we need to just pull over for a second on a trip. In Hebrew, when the heavens, the sky, and the earth, the land, when they go together, heavens and the earth, they mean everything. If you separate them, then they're their own words. So the heavens and the earth, earth, heavens, are three different terms. Do you see that? Heavens and the earth, everything there is. Uh, the heavens, the sky. The earth, the land. Okay. Not planet earth. Some of you are looking at me like, Charlie, where are you going with this? I promise you I'm not leading you out of orthodoxy. I want I, to show you how beautiful and how heavy and glorious the orthodox anchor is. So track with me here. The earth, 
the land, the ground, or, uh, well, here, just if you have your Bible open, you can see uh, in verse 10, Moses actually defines the word earth. The, the Hebrew word is eres, A-E-R-E-S, if we were going to transliterate, or E-R-E-S, eres. Uh, now, the eres was formless and empty. Now, if you make down the page, you get to verse 10. It says that God called the dry ground eris, or land, and gathered up the waters and called them the seas and saw that it was good. So, now the earth was formless and void. The eris, the dry ground area. But there's more to this word eris here um, in the Bible. If, if we, the, in fact, the, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, did you know that we, these are five books for us, but when Moses wrote them, he, he wrote them as one book, one volume, delivering the Pentateuch to the people. And if we look through the Pentateuch and look at the way the word erist is used, it actually becomes a dominant theme from Genesis 1 all the way to Deuteronomy 32. Maybe 32. 30-something is the last chapter in Deuteronomy. This word, eris, it's like a, it's like a, um, like a, uh, what do you call it when there is a little tune or a little theme that's repeated throughout a symphony? What is that called? Danielle, you know what I'm talking about? A theme. Yeah, this word, when it comes up throughout the Pentateuch, it rings and shines. It appears over and over again. And you've heard it. And if you grew up with the Bible, you know it. You'll hear the theme and you'll recognize it. If we get past this intro section to the book, Genesis 1 through 11, and we go to uh, Genesis 12, where the story of Genesis zooms in on Abraham, the first verse is this. Um, now the Lord said to Abraham, leave your heiress, your country, and the people in your father's household and go to the heiress, the land that I will show you. And then we remember in Abraham's story that we did last year that God had promised him this blessing of three things. The first thing was heiress, land. Second thing, offspring. Last thing, blessing. And then we move through the Pentateuch and Abraham is sojourning in the heiress. And then his descendants are promised the Eris. And then we move on through the story and the people leave the heiress to go to Egypt. And then after 400 years of slavery, God breaks them out of bondage in Egypt. This is the time now where Moses is writing this and they're moving towards a heiress that God had promised to Abraham, an heiress flowing with milk and honey, an heiress that God had promised to them as an inheritance. Are you hearing the theme? So, Genesis 1. In the time before, it could have been real short, like super short, like maybe like, like just, you know, like as short as like, like that. Or could have been really long, billions of years. We don't know. We don't know how long beginnings are. Could have been like the Silmarillion. In the time before, God created everything there is, the heavens and the earth, but now the earth, the land, was formless and void. Are you seeing a story come together here? Okay, let's keep moving because we're going to run out of time and I just get really excited about this stuff. Now, the land was formless and empty. Maybe some, some translations say formless and void, or a void and a waste. Um, remember how I told you that, oh, by the way, the Hebrew here is fun. This one's fun to say. Tohu wabahu. Uh, tohu is a word that means uh, uh, unproductive or uninhabitable or desert. And wabahu is only used uh, here in the Bible. And in fact, Hebrew scholars are like, I don't really know what that means. Uh, we, we haven't really seen that before. But there's a, a clear consensus that it's meant to rhyme with tohu and that Moses is, it's like a, he's putting them together to, to make it memorable. So it's 
It's the, the idea here, tohu and wabahu, says formless and uh, empty, and the idea is desert, uh, barren, unproductive. Now, remember how I told you that in Greek, you know, ancient Greek, Mount Olympus type stuff, uh, the idea was that before creation, the world was just this primordial soup of chaotic mess, and the gods came along, and, and from Mount Olympus, from, from wherever, they, they brought order to the chaos, and they ordered the world into something that probably looked like a beautiful idea of Greek philosophy. Remember that? Well, well that view of reality, uh, well, Greek philosophy in general, really shaped the culture of Western thinking. So, when uh, the Septuagint in A.D. 70 was translated from Hebrew into Greek by Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews in Alexandria, they took tohu wabahu and they translated it as uh, some sort of primordial chaotic mess. And that translation they, they stuck. And when we got to the English Bible in the 14th, 15th, and 16th century, we got formless and void. And for all of us trained in Western classical thinking, we see primordial soup. But if we go back to the Hebrew, we don't see primordial chaotic soup. We see the land is barren, is desert, is uninhabitable. Why is that? Why is the land, desert, uninhabitable, and barren? Well, we find out uh, that right after this, it says, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Do you know why the land uh, was barren? Not because God was there with some kind of primordial chaotic soup, but because the land that he was about to make for his people to dwell in was covered with water. And if you are looking for food and water while you're out in the middle of the ocean, you might as well be in a desert. It's not going to grow anything. It's not productive. So the land was a desert was uninhabitable, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. These uninhabitable waters were in the dark. Now, is it darkness because we're in this like pre-time and space primordial soup? No, it's darkness because if we keep reading it to the next verse, there hasn't been light yet. God says, let there be light, and there was light right after this. So it's dark. The lights have not been turned on yet. So it's dark over the water, and what's going on? The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now let's camp out right here for just a second. The Spirit of God. Hebrew, we have Ruah Elohim. Now this is tricky. Ruah means spirit or wind or breath. You might have read some translations where it says like a, a, a wind of God was moving over the, well, technically you could say wind, but um, winds don't hover. <laughs> they don't. And there is no, in the Bible, we don't find wind of God. We do find spirit of God. So 100% positive that the Hebrew can go either way, but if we look at this in the context of all of Scripture and in the context of just using our brains, we see spirit. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, if we're thinking, uh, if we're thinking like like a like a Jewish person, uh, God is not Trinity. Uh, just looking at the Old Testament, the Spirit of God is God is God's power and might going out from Him to accomplish something, and that's true. His Spirit is what goes out from Him, what proceeds from Him uh, to accomplish something, and the Spirit is spirated. Uh, that's a word that 
brings the idea of breath from the Father. So the Spirit goes out and accomplishes things. But as Christians, we look at the whole canon of Scripture and we're able to see that Father, Son, and Spirit are one God. So we read this and we see the Spirit of God. Oh, of course, the Spirit's part of the Trinity. Of course, the Spirit's there. But we need to get our Hebrew brains moving and see this not just as the Holy Spirit member of the Trinity, but as God's uh, action going out from him. Do you see it? Again, confrontational here to the pagan worldviews around the people. This is no uh, creation from afar. This is no gods up on Mount Olympus, separated, ordering things. No, this is down in the, the muck of it. Do you see it? He's already been confrontational to the Egyptian gods. Now he's going after the, you know, the Greek pantheon here. This is, the spirit is right there in the darkness, over the waters, in the land, and he is hovering. Now, hovering over the waters. This language, this idea of hovering like this, hovering over, if we go through the Bible, and highlight every place that we see this Hebrew construct. We see a few places, and they shout out at us in the most incredible picture of the Spirit of God. Let me show you. If we were to go to Deuteronomy 32, 9 through 12, in fact, let me just read it here for you. Deuteronomy 32, 9 through 12. This is Moses at the end of the Pentateuch, right before they go into the Eris, the land. And he is telling the people a summary of everything he's written so far in the Pentateuch. And he says this. Um, let's start in verse 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders, and they will explain it to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind and set up boundaries for the people according to the number of the sons of Israel, for the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted inheritance. In a desert land he found them. In a barren and howling waste. Huh, that sounds familiar. He shielded them and cared for him. He guarded him, the, him being the people, as the apple of his eye. And here it comes. Like an eagle stirs up its nests and hovers over its young and spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on his pinions. The Lord alone led him, his people, and there was no foreign God with him. So here's Moses alluding to, in a long sermon we call Deuteronomy to the people, what he wrote in Genesis 1. And this idea of hovering over, he likens to a mother bird spreading her wings over her young to protect them and preserve their life and also to stir them fluttering into flight. We see this image of a mother, God being like a bird covering over his people with his wings or like a mother bird with her wings repeated throughout Scripture. In Psalm 57, it talks about taking refuge under the shadow of the Almighty. In Hebrew, same image. When Boaz comes up to Ruth and he tells her, he says, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here. I, I see that you have put yourself under God's wings, under the wings of God. We see this image repeated throughout Scripture of God being like a mother bird covering over her young with her wings. And then we see in Luke chapter 1, The angel speaking to Mary, saying, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. There it is again. 
and a holy one will be born to you called the Son of God. If we just did a survey of this idea of God hovering through the Bible, we go from mother bird over her young all the way to Holy Spirit over Mary. Similar idea. Now, I just want to stop here as your guide on the trail and just say, guys, the second time that God is mentioned in the Scriptures, he as he revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit, is mentioned with feminine imagery. Did you know that? He is likened to something like a mother bird. Now, that, that's not to take away of, from how he's shown us to be a father that doesn't threaten his fatherliness, but it gives us a picture into what kind of father, what kind of Holy Spirit, What kind of son Jesus is? What kind of he-ness do we find in God? Well, it's like a mother bird. We're going to come back to this a little bit later, but for now, let's just stop. And did you know that? Did you know that second mention of God in the Bible, we see something that's more of a feminine image? Okay, so... Spirit is hovering over the surface like a like an like an eagle covering her young, like the Holy Spirit hovering over Mary, about to bring uh, life of the Christ child in her womb, uh, like an eagle fluttering to get stir up uh, her her chicks. The Holy Spirit is doing this over the surface of the waters that cover the land. Okay, that's verse 1 and 2. What we end up with is something like this. In the beginning, the time before, now we don't know how long or short it was, but it was before, uh, God, uh, the great God, not lesser pagan God, not the God of your understanding, but the God who is bigger, um, he created, like only he does, out of nothing, everything that there is, the whole universe. Now, There's a break. Now, the earth, the land, was like a desert. It was covered with water and it was dark. And the Spirit of God, with power, with protection, with intimacy, with initiation, with love, and with care and with miraculous ability to create life, is hovering over the waters, over the land. Is that the way you learned to read Genesis 1 and 2? It's not the way I learned to read it. But what does the Bible say? Now, let me just stop and make a just a quick point here, and then I do want to show you um, to close... I made three little notes about this. So I guess five five quick little notes. First, one of the major themes in our culture war battlefield on Genesis 1 through 3 is this idea of how many days did it take to create the world uh, and how old is the earth? If we take these first verses at face value, that whole battle, we sort of just bypass it. Later, when we get to the days, we I think they're literal days, but lots of smart people who love God, who are like gospel people, think they're day age. That's fine. Uh, We don't have to argue about that because we don't have to figure out a way to make the world older than what maybe we think it should be in order to accommodate for what we learn in science. Because Genesis 1 tells us we have no idea how old it is in the beginning. It could have been a short beginning, could have been a long beginning. It could have been on the morning just before the sun came up on day one. We don't know. Or it could have been billions of years. How long did it take God to create the world? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. What the Bible does say is that he's the one who did it. So if you feel tempted to get caught up in firing off in a war about how old is the earth, go back to Genesis 1 and read it and ask, what does the Bible say? It doesn't say how old it is. Folks, That's really cool. That's liberating. 
Hey, next time you end up in a somebody in between two people debating about whether it's how God created, you know, the 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 planet and all of space and all that, and, and during six days, you can go and you can say, well, "What does the Bible say?" The six day thing. Uh, the, the word there, eras, is, is not planet Earth. It's the land. So maybe it doesn't say what you and William Jennings Bryan or whatever thought it did. Maybe the whole thing took six days. Maybe it took longer. You see how, what does the Bible say? Taking it, some people say you don't want to take Genesis 1 literally because that leads to you being weird. Actually, if we take it literally for what the words actually tell us, it will liberate you from all this shenanigans around cultural stuff about Genesis 1 through 3. So I just want to make that point, and we'll get more into this as we start talking about the rest of the chapter. But we don't want to get caught up there. Just to end here, um, wow, holy cow, I've gone so over time. All right, we'll end with one thing. I'm sorry, guys. It's been a long one. Uh, We'll end with one thing, one question. What kind of story is this? Is this a science book story? Is this a, just a religious history only story? No. This is a gospel story. We are starting with a universe that God created and then God zooming into a land that will be tied in intimately with his promise to redeem the whole world. And there he is hovering, giving life, caring, like a mother bird. Folks, from the very beginning of the Bible, we see God preparing us as readers to do what Ruth did and put ourselves under his wings. To do what Abraham did, show me the way to the land. And to do what Mary did, here I am to serve. Christ Christ be in me. So I just want to point that out. This is a gospel story. This is a Jesus story. This is not a argue on the internet or whatever with your friends and split a church because of whatever story. You see it? All right. We'll stop there. It's been long. Uh, thanks for being gracious. Let's pray.